Welcome to a new edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today's show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Stephen Hahn, a professor of history at New York University. Steve received his PhD from Yale University and his BA from the University of Rochester. Steve won the Pulitzer Prize in American History and the Bancroft Prize in American History for his 2004 book entitled A Nation Under Our Feet, which examined African-American history after the Civil War. In addition to Steve's work generally, today we'll be discussing his new book entitled A Nation Without Borders, The United States and Its World in an Age of Civil Wars, which is published by Viking. Steve joins us today from the Huntington Library, where he is currently conducting research. Welcome to the show, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Steve, one of the most interesting things about your new book, A Nation Without Borders, is that you are challenging the profession and readers generally to rethink the nature of sectional divisions in the United States in the 19th century. Namely, you are asking us to think less about the North versus the South and asking us to think more about the North versus the Mississippi Valley, or what we commonly think of as the Midwest. Why are you doing that? Well, in some ways, I'm challenging myself as well. History and began writing and teaching uh, with a focus on North and South as the main axis, uh, axis of politics in the first half of the 19th century, the free labor North versus the slaves labor South, and the conflict um, that uh, erupted between them. But as I did more and more research and thinking about the period and learned a lot more about the institution of slavery uh, nationally as well as sectionally, it became clear that this neat divide really wasn't very helpful in understanding what was going on, that the condition of servitude of slavery did not attach to the body of the slaves. I did attach to the body of the slaves and had nothing to do with the taking of soil uh, on which the slaves uh, may have passed. And therefore, it became clear that labor in institution uh, existed across the United States. Uh, well, in the 19th century, there were slaves in New Jersey as late as 1860. And the questions about how we should reconfigure our understanding about how politics unfolded. Uh, there's no question in my mind that slavery ended up being at the center of the greatest. But uh, instead, uh, what I began to see is that um, by looking at the issues of nation building and empire, uh, that there were conflicting visions, not so much uh, from North and South, but coming out of the Northeast on the one hand, and the Mississippi Valley on the other. The Mississippi Valley um, was a really formidable developmental zone, and um, advocates uh, who were mostly in the Democratic Party uh, and included people like Stephen Douglas uh, in Illinois and 
Panthers in the local Mississippi Valley imagined a corridor that would link Chicago and New Orleans and Havana. And it would go into the creation of what they would call an agro-commercial empire that would not only extend across the North American continent, but might extend to the Caribbean basin and what we call Latin America. And I make an argument that it's really the disintegration of this coalition in the 1850s over the slavery question uh, that ended up being crucial to the eruption of the war. Uh, would you be arguing then that uh, prior to the Civil War, there was more of a middle ground, so to speak, in the middle Mississippi Valley, and that it was the war that sort of catalyzed uh, regional distinctions, or which caused people to think more in regional terms after the war, and that we're kind of losing uh, what what was uh, really a more unified Mississippi Valley prior to the war? Well, I think the process is really unfolding before the war, and it begins to emerge in the 1820s and 1830s as the issue of slavery and slavery's future is increasingly contested politically, and as opponents of slavery and defenders of slavery begin to construct ideas about who their allies are, who their geography is, and who their entities are. And so the idea of a South, uh, uh, an attempt to kind of unify what would otherwise be a divided slaveholding class, and the idea of a North and a free labor North that would organize uh, around opposition, at least to slavery's expansion, is certainly underway. But as we know, uh, the issue of what to do about slavery, about um, what was objectionable and what was not objectionable about slavery, uh, ends up developing gradually and is accelerated. Uh, during the Civil War as the uh, United States government attempts to put down the slaveholders' rebellion and in, in the process of doing that uh, has to address the slavery question in ways in which it's not uh, intended to when the um, conflict began. I think it's common in Midwestern history or among Midwestern historians to attach a high degree of significance to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and to frame the coming conflict uh, around events that happen in the Midwest, uh, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, and then the triggering event or the um, the spark in the Midwest political spark that led to the creation of this new political party in places like Iowa and Wisconsin. Is that how you see it? Well, you know, uh, it's good that you mentioned uh, Missouri and Kansas because there's no question that in many ways um, uh, these were events that not only uh, were in many ways rehearsal for what is going to happen. I mean, you, you, you could make an argument that uh, the war itself the, uh, begins uh, out in these areas as the formulas that uh, pro and anti-slavery um, constituencies try to fashion uh, basically went into crisis and it became increasingly clear that violence was going to be necessary in order to resolve uh, these issues. And um, it also suggested uh, how important the Trans-Mississippi West 
at least the western part of the Midwest, uh, would be uh, not only in the meaning of the war's issues, but in the resolution uh, of those issues. One of the key themes in your book, Steve, is that for much of the 19th century, the Central American state in Washington, D.C. was quite weak. And as it grew stronger over the course of the century, it encountered a great deal of resistance. And you point to groups such as the South, obviously, and Mormons and Native Americans. But you include in that list the American Midwest as a source of resistance to the federal state. Can you talk about why you include the Midwest on that list? Well, I think from the founding of the Republic, the federal government had an assortment of because it was not at all clear uh, who the sovereign authority in the United States was, and this is a great deal of dispute uh, over that. And as a result, the uh, first several decades of the Republic's history uh, are tied up with an assortment of challenges uh, to the federal government's authority, whether they be from Native Americans in various parts of uh, the developing United States, whether they be from uh, slaveholding planters in places like South Carolina who uh, challenge it, whether they be, as you said, governments out in the Utah Territory who want to govern themselves in the ways that they see fit. And um, what happens, really, I think one of the things we have to um, remind ourselves of is that while on the one hand, secession was clearly uh, an action on the part of slaveholders uh, who objected uh, were rebelling against the authority of the federal government, who they believed were in hostile hands. Um, it opened up all sorts of interesting questions and, and, and challenging questions about what the fate of the Union might be. One of the reasons I think Lincoln put his foot down in Charleston was fear that if the federal government did not assert its authority the rest of the country was going to fall apart. I mean, there was secessionist sentiment out on the West Coast, in the Midwest, and as you know, uh, Copperheadism uh, really has its uh, base uh, in the Lower Midwest, and Clement um, uh, Landingham, uh, you know, being the uh, leader uh, of that, and uh, uh, as far east as New York, where uh, there was an uh, interest in turning New York City into kind of a free port. Uh, of entry. So um, I think we have to recognize that there were a whole variety of potential outcomes in the middle of the 19th century, uh, whether it was um, a, a victory on the part of the rebellious slaveholders that would have broken the Union up, whether it would have been a reunification uh, where the slaveholders remained in positions of strength, whether the country would have fallen apart along all sorts of lines and there could have been uh, something of a Midwest Confederation that, um, uh, you know, off of South Week, we're talking a little bit about. You are listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today we are visiting with the historian Stephen Hahn, who is a professor of history at NYU in New York. In particular, we are visiting about his new book, Hot Off the Press, entitled A Nation Without Borders. 
Steve, I want to return to this question of resistance and the question of uh, the growing exercise of power by the federal government. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, your own biography. You uh, attended University of Rochester as an undergrad, and you uh, were influenced by, or at least came to know, the great historian Christopher Lash, who had uh, a great deal of interest in this idea of resistance, and in particular, some of your work on the southern yeoman, especially in Georgia. Could you talk about Lash's interest in this issue? Well, um, I think Lash became, uh, first of all, he was a very inspiring teacher, um, in part because he was a very demanding one and took a subject very seriously, um, and because I think he was a very, very formidable social and cultural critic. And I think he was, uh, although he was on the left politically, and therefore you would assume he would be um, a, uh, an advocate of a sort of large state, uh, he was actually very uh, concerned about what the consequences of a state like that might be in mass culture uh, more generally. He worried that in a whole variety of ways that uh, communities and families uh, had been in some ways proletarianized uh, by the process. And therefore, he was trying to imagine, I think his politics um, became more moderate over time, uh, you know better than I do. But um, uh, I do think that he was interested in the way in which um, grassroots organization uh, could take place. He was interested in the kind of local basis of democratic uh, impulses. He was interested in how communities uh, grabbed onto ideas about self-determination. And so in that way, he was looking to the populism of the late 19th century um, that was uh, institutionalized in the People's Party. Uh, and it would have been interesting to see what he would have to say about populism now, which has become uh, a central uh, part of the American and international political vocabulary, although in ways that are rather different and I'm not sure as useful. Christopher Lash was in the department at the University of Rochester when you were a student there with uh, Eugene Genovese, the uh, historian of many things, I guess, uh, including the American South, such as yourself. But uh, Genovese is often credited in these intellectual histories with bringing to prominence in the American historical profession the writings of Antonio Gramsci, who uh, began to think about the idea of resistance, including resistance to the federal state. Uh, and it seems like a lot of history for the last 30 years or so has been somewhat organized around Gramscian ideas. Do you think that's the case, and has it played a role in your studies of resistance? Well, it certainly played an important um, role for myself and for anybody who is interested in how um, uh, ruling regimes uh, message to rule and uh, what that leaves for those who want to push back or bring about substantial or fundamental 
change. The crop she was interested in was the cultural and ideological sphere, not so much the um, uh, forms of production or not so much the military and police power of the state, but what he called the hegemony of the ruling order, the way in which uh, ruling groups were able to define the main values to normalize uh, the social and cultural relations as they uh, existed in the society and to extract certain kinds of consent uh, from those who were ruled. And therefore what Gramsci uh, suggested was that the real crisis for a ruling order was not so much its political faltering or its direct attacks against it, but challenges to its hegemony, challenges to its cultural and ideological sensibilities. And so Genovese was very important in, um, because he actually read Italian before Gramsci uh, was uh, translated into English and because he was interested in the ways in which slaveholders uh, created a hegemonic order in the spouse, both in relationship to slaves, which I think is more dubious, and in relationships to other free white people who accepted uh, their leadership. Uh, it has become more and more important to a variety of historians who are interested in the way in which a whole variety of subordinate groups uh, uh, either reject the um, cultural um, uh, dispositions of ruling orders or uh, somehow operate within uh, the hegemony of those uh, ideas. You know, one of the things about Ladge, I mean, he was a controversial figure in a number of quarters, and uh, he was controversial among some feminists who felt that um, uh, he was challenging um, the ways in which um, feminism was uh, uh, causing certain kind of boundaries and reconfiguring uh, relationships of family and so on. But Lash, I thought, was preeminently a social critic. Uh, he was more in the Hofstadter mold. He was a beautiful writer. And it was clear to me as a student early on, he was a very deep thinker. And um, engaging with and struggling with what Lash had to say. So to this day, you know, I oftentimes go back to his work. I did recently, I, I was writing this book, you know, as you know, The New Radicalism in America was, you know, not his first book, but his the first, first book that got him, you know, a great deal of attention. And, um, you know, about his uh, views of uh, the turn of the 20th century. And um, I do think that Lash is really one of the most important uh, historians uh, of the second half of the 20th century. Speaking of Lash, uh, he was very interested in local organizations and protecting local culture from the effects of mass society. And uh, many cultural regionalists saw themselves as resisting these national trends and mass society and the dominance of New York and Boston in the literary world and in culture more generally. I wonder, do you see that as a do you see this kind of regionalism as a form of resistance that's potentially connected to the line of thought coming from Gramsci and other thinkers? Well, you know, one of the things that um, 
we have to recognize is that, um, you know, resistance is a complicated idea, and then you think about who's resisting what. Now, um, there have been, uh, you know, much of the kind of small populist resistance uh, over the last 40, 50 years, um, rather than coming from uh, the left, uh, which we associate in the 19th century, uh, which really comes from the right, which may have a lot of historians uh, lost interest in populism because suppose they didn't want to write about that. Um, uh, fortunately, some of them uh, did. Uh, I think that um, the grassroots right um, uh, took a great deal of advantage of precisely what you're talking about, a sense of a um, centralizing state and political economy in which uh, certain groups were being favored and other groups were being uh, left out and which certain parts of the country were being ignored or overlooked. I mean, I think uh, if we look at what happened in the recent election, which is the uh, culmination of, of trends that are, are much deeper, we can see a lot of signs of that, uh, I don't know if I would call it regionalism per se, but a sense of um, uh, small towns, rural versus urban and suburban, a sense of uh, people being left out and uh, trying to, you know, voice their own protest and resistance. I think Trump benefited from uh, a sense that it was worth even taking a chance on someone who uh, was unsavory uh, as opposed to installing or validating what they regarded as a regime that uh, ignored them. I do think that uh, this is going to be, you know, um, even with the uh, emergence of American nation state in the middle of the 19th century, uh, federalism and regionalism, as you well know, uh, remains a powerful force. Uh, region expresses both desire and um, and power. Uh, we talk about regions in relationship to uh, a powerful center and uh, about the way in which certain parts of the country are uh, uh, areas of political economy are, are basically subordinate. And um, I think regionalism comes uh, along with uh, that sense of shifting power relations. Regions are places that usually need to be quote-unquote fixed uh, by the center, but um, you know, in a real Gramscian way in a sense, uh, people who live there often take on uh, that uh, uh, feeling of subordination by um, uh, in embracing uh, their own values and uh, material culture and music and literature as ways of declaring their significance and contesting the uh, authority of the center. I mean, Lash, as you know, was a great critic of mass culture in the United States, and he joined a number of other very significant cultural critics uh, in doing that. And so I do feel that his work um, is is a sort of constant reminder of uh, even for people who uh, favor much of um, the centralizing uh, or state power that has developed. Last was a was um, you know called us to account for that and uh, asked us to think more critically about uh, what the consequences would be for communities, families. Um, 
four regions and for our uh, intellectual and cultural life. Your book, Steve, covers the years 1830 to 1910, which are the years when the historians who work on the Midwest see the emergence and the entrenchment of a Midwestern regional identity. And this very much fits with what you're describing in terms of the dynamics between the central state and regions. Did you notice any of these tendencies uh, when you were doing your research for this work? Yeah, I did. You know, I, I, I mostly did a historian of the American South, and um, anybody who is a historian of the South is quite aware of the issue of that regional identity and that resistance to central authority and that question of, 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 of uh, power and uh, certainly of the consequences of uh, losing struggles against the center, but also the uh, cultural um, uh, values that, um, you know, come as a result. So I think, you know, this is certainly something you see in all sorts uh, of places. Um, you know, and then, as you know, the Midwest is not one place. Uh, there are different parts of the Midwest, and people identify themselves uh, in those Terms. I mean, the Upper Midwest is different, and it has different cultural and political uh, traditions than parts of the Lower Midwest have. You think about, um, you know, Minnesota or the Dakotas, and then you think about um, uh, Illinois or Indiana. I mean, these are not only populated by different people, but they have had, you know, very different political trajectories. Uh, certainly, the Upper Midwest. You know, one of the things that's really important during the Civil War period is the Great Two Uprising. And, uh, you know, another rebellion within the rebellion. And uh, it suggests that the Indian Wars of the second half of the 19th century actually began not after the war, but, but during it. And this is also, you know, to think about the way in which Native peoples contribute to our own sense of what the, you know, cultural... Uh, distinctiveness and balance of these things we call regions uh, of the country. So uh, there's a lot, you know, it's anybody who studies the 19th century can see uh, how a shift in power relations you can imagine had, you know, the Civil War ended up differently and the country was either united in a different way or uh, fell apart, which is entirely possible. Then our whole sense of One of the frustrations of Midwestern historians, uh, Steve, is that the South, as you mentioned, receives an enormous amount of attention in American history and in terms of uh, regionalism and in terms of regional identity. And a lot of people don't even recognize the existence of much of a regional identity in the Midwest. They see it sort of as an extension of, uh, you know, nationalist tendency. Yeah. But I'm just wondering what... I'm just wondering what your sense of this is. Well, I think that this this um, is um, a way of thinking about how politics and ideas about region change. Um, certainly, one of the things, the event that has been most decisive in constructing our sense of what the nation is and what the regions are uh, was the war, and there's no question that. Um, 
those who uh, remained on what we call the youth side and who were victorious in the war and uh, secured sovereignty at the central power of the nation are regarded as part, I mean, it's like the New Yorker column, you know, of New York looking out o over the rest of the country, which is um, most of American history is told is that the nation is basically centered in the Northeast and extends over those areas that were loyal to it and were most influenced by it. And everywhere else is a region. So the South and the West, you know, become the regions as we uh, figure them. Now, as you're suggesting, too, if you uh, move it back chronologically uh, to the pre-Civil War period, you can certainly see the way in which there's all sorts of complicated regions or localities uh, with their own um, important cultural and political mixes that we can easily lose sight of. And actually, that I think the whole model of sexualism um, encourages us to do. Because if we think about the main um, focus of political conflict as being North and South, the West is really not part of the story, so that's automatically a region. And the South becomes the opposition. Uh, if the South had won, obviously, the Confederacy had succeeded, we would think about this differently. So the, we, that automatically assimilates uh, the Midwest uh, to the nation. And, um, you know, certainly the more we learn about the history of the Midwest and its uh, complicated social makeup, depending on where you're looking, you recognize that this is really a fiction. So I think one of the things you can get about shifting the north-south axis to a northeast Mississippi Valley uh, view, which I think has a lot. I mean, obviously, there's going to be uh, you know I'll get a lot of pushback for that because um, most of us have learned our 19th-century political history in a sectional model. But I was struck by the way that sectionalism was really a political construct that is something that. Um, people who were struggling over all sorts of issues, mostly slavery, uh, tried to uh, form ideas about alliance. And North and South kind of developed gradually over the 19th century uh, as part of that political vocabulary. But I do think by, seriously, the Mississippi Valley <laughs> as an alternative uh, uh, zone of, of development with different visions, whether you like them or not, I mean, I, I you know, as a necessarily positive, you know, the kind of agro-commercial empire that um, both slaveholders and non-slaveholders in the Democratic Party may have from the Mississippi Valley name of that. Nonetheless, they kind of forced, they, it would force us to think more seriously the political and cultural forms that uh, had developed in America. We have been talking today with Steve Hahn. He is the author of the new book, A Nation Without Borders, published by Viking Press. Steve is a professor of history at New York University. I'm John Lauk, the host of Heartland History. Today's episode was produced by Dana Brown. Thank you, Steve, for joining us from sunny California. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, 
news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.